Welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. This is episode 10, Taking Care of Business, on the Nile. In our last episode, we wrapped up our look at the maritime history of ancient Egypt, at least up through the point where their story merges with the story of the Sea Peoples and the overall collapse late in the Bronze Age. In this episode, I want to go back and take a look at the Egyptians' use of ships in their monumental building projects throughout the whole of ancient Egyptian history. As I've reiterated a few times now, the Nile can be seen as the main highway of Egypt, an artery, if you will, that made much of Egypt's civilization as we know it possible. Without question, the enduring symbols of Egypt's ancient power are the massive and beautiful stone structures that were erected throughout the land. These structures were more heavily concentrated in areas like the burial complexes at Memphis and Thebes, not to mention the Giza Pyramid Complex on the outskirts of Cairo. Aside from the pure beauty of these structures, the technological and engineering prowess that they signify is astounding. Part of this significance is that the Egyptians built their pyramids, temples, and tombs with staggering amounts of building material, material that was brought to the building sites from distances as far as 900 nautical kilometers away. Moving that material over such a great distance required a high level of sophistication and a solid grasp of the physics involved in moving large heavy objects by water. Now, the Greek mathematician Archimedes has gotten credit for discovering the scientific law of buoyancy around 212 BC, the law that any object wholly or partially immersed in a fluid is buoyed up by a force equal to the weight of the fluid displaced by the object. I'm sure you all remember that one from primary school science class, just like I do. Archimedes gets credit for articulating buoyancy as a proper scientific law, but obviously mankind has intuitively grasped this concept since prehistory, otherwise our podcast here wouldn't really have had anything to cover before 200 BCE. So we know that basic principles of buoyancy are naturally apparent, but where this principle really comes into play is in the arena of moving enormous, heavy objects by ship. To place all of our discussion today into context, remember that the 3rd and 4th dynasties, which bookend a time frame around 2500 BCE, make up the period where Egyptian kings oversaw a veritable explosion of pyramid-building projects. We know that kings stretching back to even the first dynasty built monuments of stone. So even from the start of Egypt's written history, they must have been using boats and barges to transport enormous stones and other building materials. Back in episode 6, we looked in detail at the fourth dynasty Khufu ship, a magnificent Egyptian ship that shows just how advanced Egypt's shipbuilding prowess was by the 4th dynasty. Also by this time, we saw evidence that Egypt had begun trading with Byblus for cedarwood to use in the construction of temples and ships. At least then, by the 3rd or 4th dynasty, 
Egypt was using barges to transport stone, timber, and other building supplies to their construction sites strewn along the banks of the Nile. Perhaps the greatest building project in Egypt's entire history is the one that resulted in the Great Pyramid of Giza. This one pyramid was built during the reign of Khufu, and it is the pyramid beside which the Khufu ship was buried. And as we saw in that episode, there's actually two of them there, and the second one they're working on getting put back together right now. The necropolis at Giza actually contains three separate pyramid complexes that were built at the direction of different kings over the course of the 3rd and 4th dynasties. In building these pyramids and temples, even the Sphinx, the builders at Giza took stone from several different locations which geologists have now matched up with the stones in the pyramids and temples themselves. As you might assume when I tell you that the Giza necropolis is situated on top of a limestone plateau, a large part of the limestone used to build the various pyramids was taken straight from the plateau itself, leaving the Egyptians with not too great of a distance to transport their quarried stone. However, the builders also used a thicker, whiter limestone from a quarry at Tura, a location about 15 kilometers south of Cairo. This high-quality limestone was probably used for the original exterior casing of the pyramid, and since Tura lies on the banks of the Nile, it's likely that the stones could be loaded onto barges and towed up to Giza on channels connected to the Nile. Upon arrival, they would be unloaded at the Giza harbor that was connected to the river by access canals. This seems simple enough in theory, though there are various proposals about how the harbor was constructed to make the unloading of the huge stones more feasible. The more interesting item that was shipped to Giza was granite used in the temples, as well as in the galleries of the Great Pyramid and as columns in the Pyramid Temple. Granite is much more dense than limestone and is much heavier as a result. Because of granite's density, the immense size of some of the granite columns in the Pyramid Temple has puzzled historians who debate how exactly the ancient Egyptians transported the granite to Giza. Oh, did I mention that the particular granite used at Giza has been matched to a granite quarry at Aswan, a quarry on the Nile that's over 900 kilometers south of Giza? It's one thing to bring limestone a scant 15 kilometers, of course, although that's actually a feat in and of itself. But transporting granite over 900 kilometers down the Nile is simply astounding. In looking at just how exactly the Egyptians managed to accomplish this feat, something that they did quite frequently with their different building projects that used granite, we don't really have any concrete proof about the precise manner in which it was done. There are a ton of theories out there about how the pyramids themselves were constructed, and there are quite a few additional theories about how freighter ships were used to get the building materials to the construction sites. Since we can trace the origins of the granite and limestone used in many of the pyramid projects to the quarries where it came from originally, we can likewise come to the conclusion that the overwhelming majority of Egypt's building project material came from sources right on the banks of the Nile. 
The obvious conclusion is that the material was then transported up and down the Nile, as the advantage of water-powered transport was probably indispensable to the projects themselves. On a broad level, this makes sense, but it's the technicalities of transporting these heavy granite columns and huge quantities of limestone that makes for a more interesting discussion. It becomes apparent once you start thinking about how the Egyptians could have transported granite columns and other huge objects that physics quickly comes into play. For example, the granite beams that make up the ceiling of the king's chamber in the Great Pyramid weigh at least 40 metric tons apiece, though several of the nine beams weigh even more than that. Now consider these beams single pieces of granite weighing over 40 metric tons in light of the maritime history that we've seen so far. Every ship that we've seen has been a single-hulled vessel of the type that we would normally imagine when we discuss ships generally. But could the Egyptians really have loaded and unloaded a 40-ton granite beam onto a single-hulled ship without capsizing it? And even if they managed to get the beam on board, how in the heck do you steer a ship so heavily weighted? And if you think 40 tons is a lot, wait until we get later on into the podcast. You'll really be surprised. Let's go ahead and take those two questions in turn. First, we know from archaeological discoveries at these various locations along the length of the Nile that the ancient Egyptians certainly constructed docks and piers for loading and unloading their ships. The problem is that the Nile has shifted its course over the intervening millennia, so that's basically all we can conclude. There were piers and docks. But the physics of shipping hasn't changed over the same amount of time that the Nile has, so we can safely make a few assumptions at least. Most of these assumptions today follow on the same types of loading methods that would be used anywhere in the absence of a crane or a hoist. A dry dock is one way of loading large quantities of goods onto a ship without having to worry about keeping the ship balanced on the water. This is actually one theory that's been proposed. The main theory that we have literary evidence for comes from Pliny the Elder's Naturalis Historia. In this encyclopedia of knowledge from the classical world, Pliny describes how pharaohs of Ptolemaic Egypt went about transporting the gigantic obelisks which had become prevalent by that period. In Book 36 of his Natural History, he tells specifically how an obelisk commissioned by King Nechthebis proved difficult to transport. Pliny writes that Ptolemaeus Philadelphus had an obelisk erected at Alexandria, 80 cubits high, which had been prepared by order of King Nechthebis. It was without any inscription, and cost far more trouble in its carriage and elevation than had been originally expended in quarrying it. Some writers inform us that it was conveyed on a raft, under the inspection of the architect Satyrus, but Calixinus gives the name of Phoenix. For this purpose, a canal was dug from the river Nile to the spot where the obelisk lay and two broad vessels laden with blocks of similar stone a foot square, the cargo of each amounting to double the size, and consequently double the weight, of the obelisk were brought beneath it 
the extremities of the obelisk remaining supported by the opposite sides of the canal. The blocks of stone were then removed, and the vessels, being thus gradually lightened, received their burden. What Pliny is describing is essentially this. The 80-cubit obelisk is hewn from the quarry and brought down to the banks of the Nile. And in case you're wondering, 80 cubits converts to roughly 36.5 meters, or 120 feet. Rather than try to move what was probably an enormously heavy obelisk up in the air and onto a ship that's riding high in the water, Pliny describes the ingenious method of loading the obelisk without even moving it at all. What was probably a large group of workers dug a canal off from the Nile, leading over to the obelisk itself. The canal must have been fairly wide, as the obelisk was 36 meters long, and Pliny says that only the extreme ends of the obelisk remained supported by the edges of the canal. In addition, it must have been wide enough for two ships to enter side by side, since that's how Pliny describes the ships to have been used. The other brilliant method used to accomplish this task was to preload the two ships with small blocks of stone from the nearby quarry, enough stone to weigh down the ships and force them to ride low in the water. Once the proper amount was loaded to bring the deck of each ship below the obelisk's level, the ships were then brought into the canal positioned under the obelisk. From there, it was a simple matter of unloading the small stones from each ship evenly until the ships could rise in the water and meet the obelisk where it lay, using the buoyancy principle to lift the obelisk off dry ground and ready it for transport. This catamaran-style solution is a simple method that easily solves the balance problem of carrying such a densely heavy load on water though it probably did take a large crew of people to dig the canal and to load and unload the ballast stones. That being said, the idea is simple enough that it could easily have been in use during the various pyramid-building campaigns that we've seen already. So that's one way to solve the first problem, anyway, though it could well have been done a different way. Getting the obelisk or granite pillar onto transport ships is just the first problem, though. The second problem is keeping such a heavy load under control while traversing the currents of the Nile. Our best historical evidence about steering the ship with such a heavy load comes not from a source contemporary with the building of the pyramids, but from the histories of Herodotus. This compendium of information about the ancient world was compiled from various sources and observations sometime during Herodotus's life in the 5th century BCE, therefore quite a long time after the pyramids were built. That being said, just like Pliny's observation about the loading of ships, the method Herodotus describes could easily have been used by Egyptians far back into their history as it is, again, a quite simple yet effective method. Here's what he described in Book 2 of his Histories, the book that focuses on the geography, customs, history, and tales of Egypt. Their boats with which they carry cargoes are made of the thorny acacia, of which the form is very like that of Kyrenian lotus, 
and gum exudes from it. From this tree, they cut pieces of wood about three feet long and arranged them like bricks, fastening the boat together by running a great number of long bolts through the three-foot pieces. And when they have thus fastened the boat together, they lay cross pieces over the top, using no ribs for the sides, and they caulk the seams with papyrus. Up to this point, he's described the Egyptian method of using irregular planks in their construction, as well as the ribless structure of their ships, like the Khufu ship that we talked about earlier. Herodotus continues, They make an steering oar for it, which is passed through the bottom of the boat, and they have a mast of acacia and sails of papyrus. These boats cannot sail upriver unless there be a very fresh wind blowing, but are towed from shore. Downstream, however, they travel as follows. They have a door-shaped crate made of tamarisk wood and reed mats sewn together, and also a stone of about 114 pounds weight bored with a hole. And of these, the boatman lets the crate float on in front of the boat, fastened with a rope, and the stone drag behind by another rope. The crate then, as the force of the stream presses upon it, goes on swiftly and draws on the barris, for so these boats are called, while the stone dragging after it behind and sunk deep in the water keeps its course straight. These boats they have in great numbers, and some of them carry many thousands of talents burden. Assuming that Herodotus here is using the measure of a Greek talent, then one talent weighed in the ballpark of 26 kilograms, or 57 pounds. Obviously, when we multiply that out to even a few thousand talents, we're talking about ships that could carry massive amounts of cargo, or a few very huge and dense obelisks or granite pillars. Essentially, what Herodotus is describing here is the same idea as an anchor, but in this case it doesn't weigh enough to anchor the ship in one place, just enough to slow it down and help keep it under control. The wooden raft-type float that he says was attached to the front of the ship would catch the current, pulling the ship forward, while the stone attached to the ship's stern would slow the force of the downstream current allowing the sailors to steer the ship. This method would have been used often, since the Nile River winds blow north to south, preventing the ships from using a sail when traveling downstream, as was often the case for the stone that was quarried in Upper Egypt and brought north. There's some debate about the fact that Pliny's example gives the impression that a dual barge was used to transport an obelisk while Herodotus only alludes to single ships. The catamaran-like dual barges would have worked in theory, but as we'll see, there isn't any real pictorial evidence of that type of transport vessel. Though again, that doesn't completely rule out the fact that it was used in ancient Egypt. We just don't have any concrete proof. Speaking of pictorial evidence, let's transition over to looking at a few examples of heavy transport ships from different periods of ancient Egypt. The oldest depiction of such a vessel discovered to date is from the causeway of the Pyramid of Unas, a pyramid that was built at the end of the 5th dynasty, circa 2300 BCE or so. 
The image of the ship itself and the columns that it's carrying are fairly hard to make out, and the image really doesn't tell us that much about the structure of the ship anyway. The inscription accompanying the image, though, tells us that the columns of granite came from the granite quarries of Elephantine, or Aswan, a prime source of granite in ancient Egypt. The most useful depiction of a heavy transport ship comes from later on in Egypt's history, specifically from a depiction associated with the 18th dynasty queen, Hatshepsut. The 18th dynasty spanned roughly 1500 to 1400 BCE, and another 18th dynasty pharaoh before Hatshepsut was Thutmose I. We know that he also used heavy transport vessels thanks to an inscription that was commissioned by an official during the reign of Thutmose I, a man named Ineni. Ineni's inscription is almost like a biography of the accomplishments he oversaw during his tenure, this specific accomplishment making mention of obelisks being transported by ship to Karnak, where Ineni was the architect overseeing the construction of the Temple of Karnak. Ineni's inscription quotes him as saying, I inspected the erection of two obelisks, built the august boat of 120 cubits in its length, 40 cubits in its width, in order to transport these obelisks. They came in peace, safety, and prosperity, and landed at Karnak. Of these two obelisks, one is still standing at Karnak to this day, so we know that the two together weigh over 350 tons, and the length conversions lead us to conclude that a single ship of 63 by 21 meters, or about 206 by 69 feet, was able to carry both of these massive obelisks. The obelisks themselves are 23 meters long, so as we will discuss in just a second, it's possible that they were laid end-to-end, -end, but some scholars believe that they were actually laid side-by-side -side on the ship's deck. Moving forward, the most detailed and vivid depiction of a transport ship comes from the mortuary temple of Hatshepsut, the same place where we saw the most enlightening depictions of Egyptian voyages to Punt. This particular depiction shows a large ship carrying two obelisks laid end-to-end. -end. The problem is that some interpret this depiction literally that the Egyptians actually transported the obelisks end-to-end -end on the deck of an enormous ship. The obelisks at the temple at Thebes are 30 meters long and weigh about 330 tons each. So if they were really laid end-to-end, -end, then the ship would have to be substantially larger than the ship described in Ineni's inscription. However, some archaeologists have pointed out that the Egyptians didn't always use literal depictions. Rather, the image of two objects, one above the other, is often supposed to convey the idea of one of them being behind the other one. Thus, we can't be 100% certain that the Hatshepsut ship carried the obelisks end-to-end. And then on top of that, there's the possibility that the dual barge method described by Pliny was also used and just not depicted in a convention that makes sense to our modern eyes. While we can't definitely know the technical details of this ship, 
the depiction does show at least five Hogginghausers, presumably such a large number because of the sheer weight of the ship's cargo. One final detail from the relief confirms the fact that when heavy transport ships were making their way downstream, against the wind, they were towed by tugboats. Again, we can't discern the details from this depiction, but there's enough there to tell that there were multiple ships involved in towing the heavily burdened ship down the river. I wasn't able to find a full image of this depiction, but in his oft-quoted compilation, Ancient Records of Egypt, James Henry Breasted described the relief like this. A large towboat with the obelisks lying trussed upon it is being towed by three rows of oared barges, nine in a row, each row headed by a pilot boat. The towboat is accompanied by an escort of three boats, in which religious ceremonies are being performed. He also includes a very disjointed translation of the inscriptions, which were accompanying the image of the obelisks being transported in the Hatshepsut temple. But these translations aren't complete. However, they do tell us a tale of the transport of the obelisks, a great gathering of people to rejoice over their safe arrival, and a dedication ceremony before they were erected at the temple. When all is said and done, we know that the ancient Egyptians were proficient shipbuilders who could use the advantage those ships provided to transport enormous monuments and amounts of building material. There's perhaps no better example than the famed Colossi of Memnon, the imposing twin statues of Amenhotep III that sit across the Nile from modern-day Luxor. Amenhotep III reigned about a century after Hatshepsut, so the fact that these 720-ton statues were transported from the quartzite quarry where they were cut confirms the fact that Egypt had fine-tuned its ability to ship enormous objects. And don't let Wikipedia fool you, because it actually says on there that the Colossi of Memnon are too heavy to have been transported upstream on the Nile. Although the nearest possible quarry where the quartzite could have come from is over 200 kilometers upstream from where the Colossi now sit, a recent study showed that the Egyptian shipbuilding abilities demonstrated in the Hatshepsut barge, and even in earlier depictions, would have been more than enough to build a ship capable of carrying one of the colossal statues. The authors of this study did multiple computer simulations to find whether Egyptian ships could indeed carry a 720-ton statue. Even when they inputted plank and construction techniques similar to those used on the Khufu ship, a ship that was built a thousand years before the Colossi of Memnon were transported, they came up with a ship that was physically capable of bearing the load. That result is just staggering to me, and I think it shows that we don't give ancient cultures enough credit for their ingenuity. But then again, maybe ancient alien theories rope in the listeners like real history doesn't. What do you think? Should I abandon the maritime history and try my luck with ancient alien theory instead? Let me know what you think on the podcast website or on our social media, but if I got your hopes up with that possibility... 
then I'm going to go ahead and dash them on the jagged rocks of reality just as quickly. I'll go ahead and stick to the more conventional view that, in my opinion, is more fascinating since it's real history. After all, there is the History Channel if you need your fill of aliens and all that other stuff. Or Stargate, I guess, which is a pretty good show, by the way. Check it out if you haven't. But let's bring that digression to an end. That's all I've got for today's episode, and that's all we're going to look at for Ancient Egypt at this point. They'll re-enter the story once we get back up to the Sea Peoples and everything that went down during the Bronze Age Collapse. But for our next episode, we're going to wind back the clock and look at one of the Mediterranean cultures that emerged fairly early on, most likely the Minoans, but I'll post some more updates on our social media outlets to give you a better idea where we're headed as I work on the research. To conclude today, I'm going to take a page from the books of several other history podcasts I listen to and ask you to consider supporting the Maritime History Podcast either on our Patreon campaign or via a one-time donation through PayPal on our website's Support the Podcast page. While the History Channel may have the benefit of big funding, I honestly can't remember the last time that I saw actual informative history on there. So if you're able to, any support you could throw our direction for the creation of informative content about actual history well, your support would make a huge difference. I should mention that on our Patreon page, there are details about the possibility of starting a premium content feed if we can raise enough support for the podcast. So if that's something you're interested in, check it out. As far as what would be on the premium feed itself, I've got some ideas floating around in my head at this point, but I'd love your input as well, either on the website forum or on one of our social media profiles. And, as I've mentioned before, if you can't donate to the podcast monetarily, just spreading the word about the podcast is good enough for me. There's also iTunes reviews and reviews on other sites that getting our podcast before more listeners would be a great way to also support us. So thanks for your consideration in any of those avenues. I look forward to hearing input from the community, and until next time, Thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast. <laughs>